This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. We've just learned about the latest revision to those controversial liberal tax reform plans that have caused such a backlash. We've been reporting on those for months now, and this week the government has been walking back some of its plans. It started with an announcement of a small business tax cut, something they actually promised before the last election but did not act on. Today, they dealt with the plan to heavily tax passive income in a corporation, and that is money that businesses save for a rainy day or for retirement or to cover a maternity leave, as in the case of many female doctors. Now, throughout the piece, uh, the Liberals have been saying that business owners get a really unfair advantage by saving this money inside the corporation. Okay, so it turns out that our finance minister, Bill Morneau, a very wealthy man, avoided putting his assets into a blind trust, which is what federal politicians usually do by holding those assets in a corporation instead of holding them personally. Well, what do you think of that? Speaking of blind, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And by the way, the change that the finance minister announced today to the rules for those passive investments, he said that he will allow it under the old rules up to $50,000 a year. Right now, we go to Nathan Cullen, the MPP for Skeena Bulkley Valley and the NDP critic for ethics, and David McDonald with the Center for Policy Alternatives. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Okay, so uh, first of all, uh, Nathan, what do you make of this change? And also, uh, we just learned that uh, the finance minister did not put his assets in a blind trust because he kept them inside a corporation. Mm. So maybe I'll take the first things uh, first. That uh, From the beginning, there are some merits to what was proposed. If there are people exploiting loopholes or not paying their fair share of tax, this has been something the NDP has been at for years, along with lowering the small business tax rate, which we first promoted with Jack Layton 10 years ago or more, and Mr. Trudeau promised, so bringing that in is fine. A bit late, but good to finally do. On the, the second part of your question, there's a, apparently a loophole that Mr. Morneau has used in our ethical code where if he uh, chose to, which he did, set up his company as a numbered company, it avoids him being seen as a conflict of interest technically under the Act. But here's the problem, is that as finance minister and having run a, a successful company that deals with things like pensions and such, he is on record promoting a bill. He sponsored a bill in Parliament that would greatly benefit his company, Morneau Chappelle, which he still directly 
has $43 million in shares in and is indirectly in control of those shares. That means that somebody could be using their elected office, their elected position to benefit themselves and their family, which goes against every ethical guideline imaginable, even though maybe avoided by this loophole, um, which really the ethics commissioner herself asked to change four years ago and has remained on the books. Um, yeah, and David McDonald, it, it's interesting because he basically, uh, his uh, defense was, uh, I was in constant contact with the ethics commissioner, and then apparently the ethics commissioner said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, we did not recommend this to him. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like uh, like Nathan knows more about this issue than I do. Uh, certainly in terms of the changes that have come out this week on the on the small business front, um, we are getting additional information and some better definition of what uh, of what the income sp- what their plans are in income sprinkling, and particularly today, what their plans are in passive income. Um, and it does appear that on the passive income side, uh, they're they're really targeting the very high end folks. Like these are the folks that are aggressively using private corporations as a means of saving, likely for saving for retirement. So it's about three percent of corporations that would likely be impacted by the rule, which is to say. If you're making more than fifty thousand dollars in essence in interest on your on your savings in your private corporation, then that's going to be disallowed in some way. There might be a surtax or something like that, um, and so you'd have to probably have a million dollars saved up in your corporation. Well, that's a that's a fair amount of money and a pretty high bar. It's going to capture probably ninety percent of all of the passive income in, in small businesses, which is pretty incredible. Uh, how, how I, I sorry, I, I just need to go over the math. If they say you can you can save fifty thousand, how how does that add up to a million? You'd say no, you, you need you to can, make a million can, to save fifty thousand? No, you can make fifty thousand in interest mm, on oh. your, your savings, which would mean that you'd probably have to have a million dollars in ah. savings to make you know, 50000 in interest, you know, say if the interest rate was 5%. You, there's different assumptions around your rates of return and so on. But, I mean, you've got to have a lot of money in the bank to make 50000 in interest. And that's what, that's what their, this sort of their, their line in the sand. If you start making more than 50000 in interest in a given year, uh, then that's going to be disallowed or taxed at a higher rate or something like well, that. So, well, thank you for that, because I read it was a very uh, small report on it, and I read it wrong. I thought it was that you could put away... Fifty thousand in a passive investment, but no, it, uh, that's, that's uh, you can make that much in interest off of what you've already put away. So it's a it's a high bar, and what's incredible is that it's going to affect three percent of corporations and capture about eighty percent of the uh, of the passive income because the, the holdings are so concentrated in, in a very few number of families that are aggressively using small businesses as a means to evade uh, retirement savings taxes in essence. Okay, so um, Nathan Cullen, uh, back to the ethics question. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you think the finance minister seemed to miss all this? I mean, his reputation is is as a a really fine, upstanding man. Well, and very intelligent. And very intelligent. (laughs) Right, and and good with business and good with things like this, like how do you do an ethics disclosure properly? The the, the ethics he was guided by in the private sector – were more stringent than the ones even in Parliament. So finding and exploiting this loophole where he was able to set up a numbered company, still gain benefit um, while being elected to office, but it wasn't him gaining the benefit, it was this company, because a company is an entity under Canadian law. It's a person. Right. And so the heritage here is incredible, right, where you say, well, it's not Morneau 
uh, who's getting the direct benefit. It's company 6-04321, who's solely owned by Mr. Morneau, but that's okay. And so for a lot of Canadians looking at this, you say, well, did he do anything that was going to benefit him? And back in 2013, when he was ahead of Morneau, uh, Chappelle, he said, we need to get these things going called targeted benefit plans. It's a different type of pension. When New Brunswick uh, took this over in their, at their provincial level, Morneau Chappelle was the lead consultant to help them move into these pensions. He has a bill that he introduced a year ago in Parliament to create more targeted benefit plans, which is more business for Morneau Chappelle, which is more money for Mr. Morneau, who owns $43 million of shares in Morneau Chappelle. And so you say, okay, <laughs> how do you, it, while technically and maybe legally, very specifically, okay, ethically, this is a total mess. And this is why every finance minister I've ever heard of, anybody you have means, has put their things into a blind trust or sold their shares so that they don't end up of interest where pushing forward a bill directly benefits them and this bill c27 folks can look it up is not only a bad bill on pensions i would argue but is also puts the finance minister in a mess because his name's on it and he's going to do well if this thing passes into law wow um nathan uh, i i know that uh you have to go soon but just uh, do you have any kind of how did he get himself into this do you have a theory on this no, I mean, it was a choice that when he came in, he, he said to the press two years ago when he was elected, and they asked, how are you going to avoid conflict of interest? He said, I'm very likely to move all this into a blind trust, and I'm working with the ethics commissioner of how to do that. So everybody ran for the assumption, me included, liberals included. Adam Vaughn in Toronto said, hey, look, don't worry, it's in a blind trust for two years now. So the trust level is at an all-time low because now he's coming forward to the ethics commissioner and saying, well, hey, let's talk about how to put this in a blind trust now. Well, you don't get a lot of credit for having high ethical standards when you only present them when you're caught. The problem is, as you saw in that press conference, I don't know if you saw it, Libby, but this week when the prime minister wouldn't let the finance minister answer. Yeah, questions. that was quite a sight. It's a sight and it's a thing if the prime minister, Trudeau in this case, loses confidence in his finance minister, because then how can the rest of us expect to have confidence in him? And he's I'd say both on the message and the messenger, while they've tweaked their small business proposal, certainly there's been an uproar and a, and seemingly like a misunderstanding of how some aspects of small business work, certainly in their initial proposal. And it's put off, I know in my region in British Columbia, huge numbers of small business people that say this guy doesn't get it, what it is to struggle. And this measure and this measure and this measure make it very hard for women in some cases, very hard for entrepreneurs coming into business. And so while they've been trying to to fix it, fix the problems that they made. I would say just in the general, unless Mr. Morneau comes over and puts everything on the table, says, here it is, this is all I own, this is how I own it, as should be expected, then I just don't know how he regains confidence of the Prime Minister, of me, of any Canadian to say that this guy isn't also feathering his own nest while he's doing his job on behalf of Canadians. Okay. And uh, David, um, the tweaks to this tax proposal, do you think that makes this a good plan or not? Well, I certainly think that the income sprinkling they seem to be going ahead with, uh, with relatively few changes. Are there some exceptions for uh, for multiplication of uh, the capital gains exemption, lifetime capital gains exemption, uh, if you're passing, uh, say, farm or family business onto children? But but broadly, it seems to be going ahead on the income sprinkling file, which is to say you can't income split just because you have a private corporation. Um, it it does appear that on the uh, passive income side, 
that this is a positive move. Uh, you know, I, I see that benchmark as pretty high. I mean, this means that business owners can save a million dollars uh, in their corporation and gain the benefits that we've been discussing. Um, I guess the, the fact of the matter, when you look at the data, is that very few businesses actually get anywhere near that. Uh, most of them save under 100000 uh, And so I, I think that for the vast majority of businesses, this will absolutely meet their concerns. Uh, I mean, I think that there are probably still some equity concerns here, but they've, they're, they're essentially closing this, this loophole for the, for the really high-end abusers of this loophole. So I, I think that that's probably positive. I think it balances both sides of what small business wants uh, as well as the need to, to close these types of benefits. So I, I think that, that it, this is a very positive move, uh, but I hope it's not the last move. Uh, you know, so this targets owners of small business, which, which, who can be very wealthy. They're not necessarily wealthy, but, uh, but these benefits often go to the, most, the, the wealthiest families. Uh, I think it's time to move to, uh, to other uh, groups that are also very wealthy, like CEOs, CEOs who in particular get a, get a substantial benefit from the stock option deduction, which they discussed closing last year, and I think it's time to bring that back onto the table. Okay, I think a lot of people would agree with you there. Nathan Cullen and David McDonald, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Um, Let's uh, take a couple of calls before we go to break. We've got Donald and Markham. Hello, Libby. How are you doing? Fine. How are you? Very well. And this has piqued my interest the last few days, and I saw the whole tree of private companies on one of the news uh, broadcasts last night when I got in. Very briefly, I'm going to speak empirically from experience 1984 um, with the Minister of Finance when he came into office. My employer was assigned the uh, co-trustee role for the so-called blind trust. It was a, in fact, I had I, a lot of work went into making it certain it wasn't a, in fact, legal trust, because when you transfer assets into a trust, there's a deemed disposition causing tax. I worked a long way to make it what was called a supervisory agreement, the Paul Martin Supervisory Agreement. So my employer became a co-supervisor, and a lawyer uh, in marine law became uh, uh, the co-supervisor. But in fact, I managed it all. Um, so now, on, that's empirical. I'll get to that briefly. Okay. I, 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 can you also sort of cut to the chase? Because uh, if it's too complicated, it's going to be hard to follow. Finance received monthly summary financial reports of summary results. I presented uh, um, investment summaries in the presence of the ethics commissioner about three times over a period of six years to update him on the status of his companies in in the presence of the ethics commissioner. So it was all done above board and had nothing to do with him running the finances of of the country. Um, now, to the extent that a wealthy person like that might have had, you know, banks, shares, and, uh, all, you know, private... Yeah, uh, what, okay. I, I'm but, sorry, well, Donald. Is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? No. Mr. Martin held himself completely above board uh, in terms of ethics and lack of conflict of interest because he had independent parties overseeing the management of his companies and reviewing his financial results and presenting in the presence of the ethics commissioner with him in person updates. And on one or two occasions, there were significant decisions had to be made under the supervisor agreement that required his approval, again, in the presence of the ethics commissioner. And with that in place, then we then authorized... uh, uh, the the um, pr- uh, proceeding with uh, okay 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 so Donald thanks for that what, what what's going on right now with me? okay Donald thanks for that let's go to Clay and Ajax Hi, Libby how are you fine how are you good I uh, uh, how good your memory Libby uh, <laughs> depends 
back when uh, Justin's father was uh, prime minister, he had a little bit of a fuffle there with the attorney general, Francis Fox. Do you remember that story? Uh, well, I remember the Francis Fox abortion story, not not That's anything else. I'm talking about. And how uh, I can remember one of the comedies in the in the paper was uh, uh, Pierre saying, uh, "Now, are you sure this is your signature, Francis?" Anyway, uh, the funny things happen, like Paul Martin having his uh, company registered offshore rather than uh, being a, a Canadian yeah. company. I mean, these things happen, don't they? Yep. So, and what's what's your take? Well, like I mean, I, I think Morneau, uh it's going to turn out to be a laughing stock because here's a guy that's stuck in his own pocket again. Okay, well, uh, that's a short and sweet opinion. We know what you think. Thanks a lot for that, Clay. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to take more of your calls on this. And we're also going to be getting the small business perspective on these changes. Do they make the tax changes okay now? We'll be right back with that and with more of your calls after this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, We've been talking about uh, the Liberals changing uh, rules for their tax reform plan. And today they changed the rules for passive income. Now, I have to say uh, I am somewhat confused because all the copy that I've seen says they are going to allow people to shelter $50,000. To me, that means that's the money you can put away in a passive investment. We've just heard uh, from one of our experts that, no, that means $50,000. You can earn up to $50,000 in interest a year. So, uh That's something we have to confirm. But right now, uh, we have a couple of people who represent small business, and I want to get their take on the changes. We've got Nadia Alam, who is with the Ontario Medical Association, and she, of course, is a doctor. And we have Ashley Zi, who is a senior policy analyst with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Ladies, welcome. Hello. Thank you, Libby. Hi. Uh, Nadia, let's start with you. Does this sound like a good change? Honestly, Libby, I'm as confused as you are. <laughs> I think <laughs> at this point, I'm, I'm getting kind of tired of this dog and pony show. I'd like to get the rules out. I'd like to get the rules written down so that accountants, people who are smarter than me, well-versed in tax law, and understanding how the tax system works can actually look at it and then tell me how this is going to impact not just my existing business as a family doctor, but the one that I'm trying to start up, my, my media business that I'm trying to start up. It's the rules today, by their faces, Mr. Mr. Morneau looked really happy, right? He looked happy saying it, but I don't know how to trust that. I don't know how to trust what this means without actually looking at the rules, at the black and white print of what these rules are. I have the same interpretation as you, but I've heard the other interpretation as well. And so now I'm kind of in this very destabilized area, this zone where I don't really know what my future is going to look like under these rules and how to even account for it. Okay, let's bring in Ashley. Ashley, can you help us out here? Sure thing. So I should start by saying that I definitely understand where Nadia is coming from. Um, these are incredibly complicated 
tax changes with potentially many unintended consequences as well. And I should, you know, remind listeners that it did, did take us, along with many tax professionals across the country, about four weeks or so to fully understand the first round of proposals that were put forward during the summer. Um, this, the 50000 threshold, the way we understand it, is on passive investment income. So it is the revenue on uh, either through dividends or other that is made on the passive investment in the business. Okay, so it's not a question of the amount that you can put away in a passive investment. We do not think so at this point, no. There is a backgrounder that the government did put forward, again, very technical with changes, and we have been going back and forth at CFIB since this morning trying to, to figure that out. But it, it does seem like it is, um, it say very clearly, actually, that it is a 50000 annual threshold on passive investment income, which, again, um, adds to the complication around that has been, you know, uh, around all of these changes. Um, and I also want to mention that this is just part two of what we think will be part three and four of the entire package of revised proposals. So we do want to wait and see the entire package that we think will be presented by Friday before making an overall assessment on the net impact on Canada's small businesses. Okay, well, I mean, if what they say is true, that that this will only target the very wealthiest of the wealthy people, because you have to have a lot of money put away these days to make 50000 Um Does that sound good to you then, Ashley, at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business? Well, the way we are framing it this morning is that the new, these new rules are a step forward. It does show that the government uh, is perhaps um, listening to the, the, the importance of or the important role of passive uh, income plays in the life of a business and in a business cycle. If it is administered properly, and when I say properly, I mean... You know, we do think there might be, there will probably be a large compliance burden associated with this, but the change could be helpful in allowing the small firms to continue to use passive income to ride out challenging times, save for investments, set, set aside money for leave, like parental leave or retirement. However, it is very low for small firms um, or for, for medium-sized firms and their ability to grow their business. So that's where the concern is. It seems it will help small firms that want to remain small, but it might be low for medium-sized firms or those that are just generally looking to grow. Um, Nadia, um, I don't know if, you, um, if you've taken maternity leave, but can you give us an idea of what it would cost you as a doctor to to stay home um, during a maternity leave and still have to, you know, keep up your practice? Absolutely. Um, so I've taken four maternity leaves um, over the course of my practice. The first time was in my first year of practice. I was not incorporated then. Um, at that time, I was able to take six weeks. And Partly that was because I had an emergency C-section and I wasn't allowed to drive until six weeks was over. So as soon as I was able to drive again, I went back to work. Because the, the reality is, even if you're not there at your practice, you still have to pay, much like other small business owners, you still have to pay for everything that runs in your practice, right? So you still have to run. You still have to pay for rent. You still have to pay for your staff. You have to pay for another doctor to care for your patients. You have to pay for the lights, the heat, the computers, equipment, anything that breaks down. And in the meantime, you also still have to pay for your mortgage and food on the table and diapers for your baby. 
things like that. So cost-wise, when you actually start breaking down the numbers, my last maternity leave, once I became incorporated, it actually made a huge difference in my ability to save up for my maternity leaves. I was able to take off three months instead of six weeks. So that's a significant difference for me. In terms of numbers, a physician to take over my practice in my absence will cost me anywhere between $850 to $1,000 a day. Overhead for me, for my small part-time practice, runs at about $100,000 a year. For some full-time practices, it can go up to $120,000, $140,000 a year. This is just as a family doctor. If you're an ophthalmologist or if you're in a practice where you have to have expensive equipment and upgrades and maintenance costs, it can run into a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. And again, all those costs continue regardless of whether you're there or not. So the most provinces now are willing to subsidize part of a physician's maternity leave, give you a thousand dollars a week, which initially sounds great, except like I already told you, between the overhead costs, between a replacement doctor, that money disappears in a flash. And this is where corporations are often used by young female physicians who are and young male physicians as well who are taking parental leave. It's not a great system for parental leave. It would be nice to actually get proper coverage from the government, but it's all we've got. That's uh, pretty eye-opening, Nadia. Um, Ashley, do you have any comments on that in the context of the government's tax reform? No, I definitely agree with Nadia, and I think that, that is, those are part of the unintended consequences and the realities that different types of business owners face when they're trying to run their business. The exact point of, you know, um, of uh, overhead costs and having to pay your employees while you're away, in addition to making your own family be able to run on a, uh, during that period, they're all um, very valid points that she's making. We do have additional questions for the government on this package that we hope to get some clarity around, especially, you know, whether the $50,000 threshold will be indexed to inflation, whether um, passive income above the threshold will, will benefit from the, the exemption on the first 50000 or, for example, if you make 60, 70, 80, if you're automatically um, forced to pay taxes um, investment taxes on that amount, or if you will have the threshold. So there are a lot of questions that are still remaining. Yeah, no kidding, a lot of questions. Uh, Ladies, thank you very much for that. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you again. Thank you, Nadia. Okay, let's uh, take a call from Brian and Mimico. Hello, Brian. Brian, are you there? Yeah, sorry. Uh, You know, uh, you got to remember the rules are a lot different in Club Liberal. (laughs) Okay. They just don't apply to them. And uh, that's just the way it is. And it's more of a club than it is a party, actually. And they will literally do what they say with the Ontario Party, spend your tax dollars just keeping themselves in power. But it would have been so refreshing if finally a reporter had the cojones the other day to say to Prime Minister Trudeau that uh, when he took the question that was directed at Morneau, said, oh, no, I'll take that one. You get to talk to me. If the reporter had said, well, you know, if I wanted to talk to you and listen to do what you do best, which is namely never really answer a question, I would ask you, right now I want to talk to the finance minister. Do you have a problem with that, prime minister? Well, I mean, they listen. 
they got so much uh, bad reviews, bad press for the way that particular news conference was handled. I don't think they got away with anything on that. I mean, it, it just looked ridiculous. Well, like I said, the rules don't apply to them, and the actor playing the role of prime minister. That's <laughs> what he was hired for, to get up and look good on television and sound oh sincere. I haven't seen acting like that since uh, Ben Hur or uh, Charlton Heston in the. You're dating Commandos. yourself. <laughs> that, yeah, well, that's, that's the way it goes. That's what we got for government now, unfortunately. Okay, Brian, thank you for that. Okay. Bye bye. Okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be switching gears. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about women in the workplace. Uh, do women have to be protected from a rule that they have to wear high heels? You've probably noticed uh, servers or people in other jobs have to wear spike heels in some places. And um, uh, there's a private member's bill to prevent them from having to do that because it can be uncomfortable and cause injury. Um, wonder what all of you think of that. Uh, the numbers before we go to break, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And we will be back with more on that after this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.